Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is John Tweeddale. John is Academic Dean and Professor of Theology at Reformation Bible College, Florida. And today we're talking to John about a new book he has edited with Derek Thomas, entitled John Calvin for a New Reformation, just published by Crossway in 2019. John, welcome back to the show and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Crawford. It's great to be back and good to be with you. Thank you for your time. Now, before we chat about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I currently serve as academic dean and professor of theology at Reformation Bible College, which is near Orlando, Florida. And I serve uh, in a variety of ways, but really focus on teaching church history and systematic theology. Reformation Bible College is part of Ligonier Ministries that was founded by R.C. Sproul. And so we are on the same camp- campus with Ligonier. And then uh, there was also a church that Dr. Sproul founded uh, called St. Andrew's Chapel. And so on our campus, we've got a chapel and we've got a ministry and we've got a college. And so very much committed to a, a new work of Reformation for today. And that, I suppose, explains the subtitle of the book, which we'll come back to. Uh, in just a second. But first of all, let's backtrack a little bit. The the book is called John Calvin for a New Reformation. Who is Calvin and why does he matter? Yeah, well, Calvin in, in many ways is one of the most important figures in the 16th century, not just for church history, but for kind of Western history. Uh, Calvin was a French reformer who spent most of his days in Geneva and is a key figurehead for those serving in Reformed and even Presbyterian churches. Uh, Calvin was born on July the 10th, 1509 in Noyon, France, and really grew up in a staunchly Roman Catholic family. Uh, His father was a administrator in kind of the town's cathedral and was a key player in ecclesiastical affairs until he had a falling out with the local cathedral. Uh, At the age of 14, Calvin went to Paris to begin studying theology at his father's behest and studied there for a number of years in a number of colleges, uh, then ultimately turned to law, uh, again at his father's encouragement, really hoping that his son would have a good career and a lucrative career. But as a result of Calvin's studies uh, in Paris, he really receives a outstanding humanist education where he's exposed to uh, some of the great uh, literary and historical works. And so during that time, he has a great training, a great education, and also begins to be exposed to uh, early kind of Protestant ideas. And so by 1533, He begins to see the bankruptcy of his uh, Catholic upbringing and has what he calls a sudden conversion, uh, which he beautifully describes in his well-known commentary on the Psalms. 
And then due to increasing tensions in France, really between 1533 and 1536, Calvin begins to wander and ultimately finds his way to uh, Geneva, having intended to go to Strasbourg to study under the well-known figure Martin Bucer. But when he's in Geneva, he meets uh, William Farrell, uh, who is really the local reformer who's helping Geneva get off the ground with its new commitment to the Reformation. And Farrell, as a good friend, basically utters the curse of God upon him if Calvin does not stay. And so reluctantly, Calvin decides to join Farrell and the two of them uh, as kind of young, restless and uh, reformers try to help the cause in Geneva. Uh, but they are ultimately run out of town in 1538, and Calvin finally ends up going to Strasbourg, where he spends time with Bootser. Uh, Bootser takes uh, one of the plays out of Farrell's playbook and utters a curse upon Calvin if he doesn't continue the work of pastoral ministry. And so Calvin serves French refugees in Strasbourg. But ultimately, by 1541, uh, the people in Geneva uh, realize how good they had it in Calvin, and they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and so they basically pled for Calvin to return. And so he comes back to Geneva in 1541, where he really resumes the role as a, a pastor and chief organizer of the Reformation, and that's a role that he serves until his death on May the 27th, 1564, and he dies uh, a minister of the gospel in Geneva. And that's really the fundamental role he serves for the better part of his life and ministry. Well, John, that's a wonderful mini biographical summary of an incredibly complex uh, figure whose writings are diverse, rich, difficult, and obviously extremely controversial. Of the making of books about John Calvin, there is no end. Uh, right. wh- what is out there that, that perhaps we should know about as we approach your book. Yeah, well, uh, to tell you a little bit about our uh, the book that we, we did. So I've known Derek Thomas for uh, a number of years. Uh, I met him first when I was a college student at a, at a church conference, and we hit it off. Then I w- went to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and basically served as uh, Derek's T.A., and then worked with him for a little while when he was minister of teaching at First Presbyterian Church at Jackson. And so he and I have developed a, a great friendship. And the volume started uh, really in, in Genesis around the time of the Calvin 500 uh, in 2009. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, we had to, to shelve the project. But then a couple of years ago, we started talking and, and really was looking at the landscape of books that were out there on Calvin and thought, you know, it, there's been some time since the anniversary of Calvin's birth, and there's still a need for a book like ours. And so we talked to all of our contributors and talked to Crossway, and everybody was on board to give this book a new lease on life. And when we thought about the book, we we realized there's some excellent books that introduce people to Calvin's biography and history. And then there are some excellent books that introduce people to Calvin's theology and writings. But there really isn't a good intermediate text that brings these two things together, kind of his life and biography and history, as well as his theology and writings, and kind of puts them together in a one-stop shop. And so it's a resource. 
at an intermediate level. And so perhaps people have read parts of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Maybe they've read an introductory biography, uh, such as T.H.L. Parker's uh, famous biography in the 20th century, or even more recently, Bob Gottfried's uh, book on uh, Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life. And both of them are, are wonderful, excellent biographical studies, but they're really at an entry level. So somebody who's done that but wants a little bit more, our, our book is kind of the next stop to go to. Uh, then once you kind of get through our book, uh, there are uh, lots and lots and lots of other books on Calvin to recommend. Uh, I think actually the Meter Center at Calvin Seminary produces an annual bibliography, and you realize that Calvin studies are something of a cottage industry. Uh, but recently, I think probably the best biography out there today is Bruce Gordon's uh, Calvin, which is done by Yale University Press. And, and Gordon really does for Calvin in some ways what George Marsden did for Edwards. When you read his biography, not only do you learn a lot about the man Calvin, but you learn a lot about the day in which Calvin lived. So Bruce Gordon's work is excellent. Uh, then another one uh, from Oxford University Press is Scott Manich, who has done some excellent work in terms of the pastoral context of Calvin's uh, ministry, especially those who came after Calvin, this really company of pastors that emerged in the academy in Geneva. Scott Manich has done some great work. And then Elsie McKee, who's at Princeton Seminary, has just done an extraordinary work looking at pastoral ministry in worship in Calvin's Geneva. So those of uh, those of our listeners who are interested in kind of pastoral ministry, I, I think uh, Scott Manich and Elsie Ann McKee's work are outstanding. And then those who really are interested in historical theology, it's hard to go wrong with Richard Muller's work on un an unaccommodated Calvin that really situates Calvin in his intellectual context, looking back to the medieval period and looking forward to the post-Reformation. And then we could kind of go on and on and on with other studies, but at least those are a couple that, that stand out. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very brave thing in such a crowded field to, to intervene by producing a new book, and, and, and yet Derek Thomas and yourself have done so with such a fine collection of contributors very, very effectively. So the book's arranged in, in two parts, John, isn't it? Part one, life and work. Part two, the teaching of John Calvin. So in, in that first part, um, given that um, Calvin's own biography has been so well worked over, that the book does a, a great job of pulling out some principal themes and having us think about them in new ways. Michael Haken, for example, has a chapter on the young Calvin. What, what's, what's that all about? Yes. So that's a great example of what we're trying to do in this book. And so in many ways, we're trying to introduce our readers to some of the best of Calvin scholarship. And we're trying to take in some ways for the academy and we want to serve uh, church pastors, seminarians, Bible college students and introduce them to, to the best thought on Calvin's life. Uh, Haken is from uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, just a wonderful historian. And what he really does is look at uh, Calvin's early life in that period of time when he is uh, receiving his early training, uh, talks about kind of the humanist education that Calvin received, and then does a great job of detailing the events that surround uh, Calvin's uh, conversion 
and really looks at what was used in Calvin's life that prepared Calvin to ultimately go to Geneva and serve as a reformer. So Haken's work is really trying to ask the question, what were the events that led up to Calvin uh, joining the ranks of the Reformation? And so it's a remarkable chapter that really distills quite a bit of scholarship, but really focuses on Calvin's humanist education and then the events surrounding Calvin's conversion. Now, thank you, John. Robert Godfrey has a chapter there called Calvin and Friends. Yeah. You've mentioned Farrell and Butzer as his cursing friends. What kinds, right. of, what kinds of friends did Calvin have? You know, it's, uh, it's a great chapter. Again, uh, Godfrey draws upon this kind of humanist training, uh, looks at uh, Cicero's well-known work on, on the topic of friendship, and then discusses how Calvin elaborated uh, on the topic of friendship, looked at kind of strategic friends, someone like Philip Melanchthon, who Calvin had kind of an awkward relationship with, but needed for the cause of, of the Protestant Reformation. Someone similar would be Heinrich Bullinger. And then there are a series of friends that Calvin kind of cultivates more or less over the course of his life. And one of my favorite kind of anecdotes on this comes from Theodore Beza's biography of Calvin. Uh, and Beza, of course, was Calvin's protege and writes very fondly of his mentor, but talks about the friendships that Calvin had with William Farrell and Peter Veret. And Beza kind of makes the case that the three of them together form essentially a near-perfect pastor, and what they did together was better than what they did apart. You know, Calvin has this great mind, and Farrell's this fiery, courageous preacher, and then Veret is this warm-hearted and very kind pastor. And the three of them really function together in, in ministry. And so Calvin, uh, or Godfrey, looks at these uh, relationships that Calvin has and then also even details some of his his enemies. But it's a beautiful chapter. I think it gives uh, a window on Calvin's life. I mean, sometimes he can be very prickly and irascible. Other times he can be very, very tender when he's describing the, the loss of his son or the loss of his wife. And as he corresponds with friends, you, you see a new side to Calvin in some ways. And so Godfrey does a great job uh, detailing those relationships. And Calvin's correspondence is revealing both of that tenderness and severity, isn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And those and those letters you can find online in a number of places really for free. And so you can access them usually through Google Books or something like that. And, uh, and you can dip into these letters and, and it's a great window on the life uh, of Calvin. You see the man in his extremes and certainly would encourage people uh, to do that. Another very fine chapter in part one is um, Douglas Kelly's chapter on Calvin and the consistory. What's, what's that all about? Yes. And so Dr. Kelly has uh, long been uh, interested in Calvin's work in the consistory, which basically is Calvin's work as an elder and a pastor. Uh, he is building off of scholarship uh, based on uh, studies uh, of the consistory in Geneva, where you look at essentially what might be called today kind of the session minutes of these meetings where the elders and pastors in Geneva got together on a weekly basis to consider 
uh, cases that arose within the Genevan church. And so Dr. Kelly basically looks at uh, a variety of these cases. And again, some of them can be incredibly tender. Uh, they'll, they'll give counsel to uh, a couple who's in a marital spat or spouses uh, or, or friends that have had a heated argument or, or business uh, partners who have uh, disagreed over uh, a problem. And they'll talk through these problems, encourage them to you know, memorize the Lord's Prayer or come to uh, the Lord's table, but at the end, they'll even say things like, make sure you touch or make sure essentially you hold hands or you give each other a hug. I mean, it's it's an interesting window on pastoral counsel in the 16th century. And so Doug Kelly really just kind of walks through a variety of these pastoral cases, uh, some of them dealing with you know sexual sin, some of them dealing with uh, family quarrels, other ones are just dealing with kind of disobedient children or divorce. And so it's a variety of topics. But really, anybody I think who's been in pastoral ministry realizes those are the kind of things that we face even today. Now, the second part of the book is uh, part two, the teaching of John Calvin. And uh, as, as you said there, uh, we have really a, a roadmap through some of the, the key themes in, in, in Calvin's work. I suppose Calvin is often stereotyped, isn't he, as being a theologian obsessed with this idea of predestination, which is often um, transmuted into some kind of fatalistic decreeism in, in, in a lot of the way that uh, this is discussed. But but your book shows that there's so much more and so many more surprises uh, in, in Calvin's thinking about providence, God's law, personal work of Christ, Holy Spirit, Christian life, the significance of adversity, um, and your own chapter on the church's mother. As, as you edited part two, what were some of the themes that really jumped out at you before we begin to? Yeah, that's that's great. You know, one of the things we're trying to do is help people to realize that Calvin, in so many ways, is more than a man of one book. Now, the Institutes of the Christian Religion are, are rightly his most significant work, and they really have uh, taken on a life of their own. And, and there's a reason why Calvin is so well known today. And that's really because of the legacy of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And yet that was really only one part of Calvin's uh, writing ministry. And so what we try to do is take themes from the Institutes, but we wanted our contributors to then branch out and show how those themes are developed in Calvin's occasional writings, in his sermons, and in his commentaries. And so uh, the topics uh, are basically uh, topics that are important to Calvin throughout the Institutes, but also uh, are ways to kind of get into uh, his, his commentaries and his sermons and other writings. So there are some great uh, chapters here uh, that we are very happy to, to have people write on. Uh, very grateful for someone like Paul Wells, who's been uh, a, a wonderful Calvin scholar at Aix-en-Provence in France, uh, writing on the person and work of Christ. Uh, Joel Beakey, who's really given his professional career to studying the topic of piety and relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, writes on Calvin's doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which Calvin has been you know, called very much a theologian of the Holy Spirit, Benjamin Warfield very famously said. 
And it's a reminder that Calvin really was attempting to write a sum of piety so that while he is working out complex doctrines like predestination, his concern is how these doctrines manifest in the Christian life. And so you see that in Beakey's chapter on the Holy Spirit, uh, as well as a very warm uh, chapter by uh, Ted Donnelly on the Christian life. And if nobody's ever read Calvin's Institutes or read Calvin at all, maybe the very best place to start is in book three of the Institutes. And that section has uh, served a life of its own as well. It's often called the Golden Booklet, where Calvin talks about the importance of cross-bearing and self-denial, and as that relates to the Christian life. And Donnelly's chapter uh, walks through that theme. Uh, Derek Thomas has really given his life to thinking about Calvin's preaching on Job that arose out of his own Ph.D. work. And Job, of course, considers the great themes of the incomprehensibility of God, as well as the problem of kind of human suffering. And, and Calvin very is helpful in, in joining those two things together. And Derek's chapter is really brilliant looking at Calvin's sermons there. Uh, then Paul Helm, who's just a, a wonderful philosopher and theologian and has written extensively on Calvin, gives us an overview of that very controversial um, topic of predestination. But he very helpfully situates Calvin's thought on predestination in the broader theme of his understanding of providence. And so those are a couple of, of chapters that uh, I think stand out and, and would encourage uh, people to pick up. And then maybe one other one is my own colleague, Keith Matheson, who really has focused quite a bit of his professional career on the topic of the sacraments and the question of the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. And that was a, as a key idea in uh, Calvin's uh, writings. And Keith's chapter is maybe one of the most helpful short summations of, of that fairly complex topic in Calvin's writings that I know of. And so would would encourage people to read uh, Keith Matheson's chapter on the sacraments. And John, your own chapter in part two is about the idea of church as mother, which is a big theme in Calvin's writing. What What is this idea of the church as mother? That's right. Well, that chapter came as a result uh, of the fact that I'm I'm a teacher to college students, as well as I've been a, a pastor in a local church and so many people, when they come to Calvin or, or might even come to kind of Presbyterian thought or read the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, come across statements like, you know, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother, or there is ordinarily no salvation outside the local church. And many of our students or, or many of the congregants would come and they would just have questions about uh, what this actually means. Is this some kind of a uh, nascent form of, you know, Catholicism. What exactly is Calvin getting at? And so it was an opportunity for me to uh, trace a, a common metaphor in Calvin's writings, reminding people that, you know, he develops this theme in the last book of the Institutes, book four, which is actually as big as books one, two, and three combined. And so really at the heart of Calvin's work is his teaching on the doctrine of the church. And it's been one of the great uh, topics in Calvin scholarship over the past number of years. And so I try to analyze that theme as in, it, in the Institutes, as well as his other writings to show how Calvin is not trying to undermine, say, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but also wants to 
retrieve a, a metaphor that's taken from uh, church fathers like Cyprian and Augustine, and then he applies it to the the local context in Geneva and asks the question, you know, what is the role of essentially a local church in the life of a believer to encourage and nourish faith? And so Calvin sees the church as the society of Christ. It's where God places his means of grace, the word and the sacraments. And it's through those means that God's people grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And there are times when your local church will fail you. There are times when you'll be discouraged by what you see in the church. And yet God has promised to build his church, not because of us. And yet it's still through us. And often it's despite God's fail, God's people and their failures. And Calvin has this great, does this great job of just kind of massaging this metaphor of mother throughout his writings, just to encourage people to rely on the, the nourishing care of the church as the local church is committed to, say, the, the means of grace. And so that was an attempt to look at scholarship on Calvin on that topic and then how he worked on that theme throughout his writings. And so, yeah, it was it was a uh, joy to, to write and had a lot of fun doing it. And in a way, your conclusion is surprising, John, isn't it? Because in the minds of many people who know about Calvin or have heard of Calvin, they would associate his name with a very low church tradition. Right, right. How does that map on to what you argue in that chapter? Yeah, in many ways for Calvin, the church is indispensable to the Christian life. Uh, one of uh, Calvin's well-known works is titled The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And there Calvin makes the case why the Reformation is necessary. And you might think his number one reason would be the doctrine of justification by faith alone or the importance of the authority of Scripture. And he certainly features those doctrines. But in Calvin's mind, the chief reason for the Reformation is the importance of public worship, of the gathering of God's people and the ministry of the local church under uh, the ministry of the word of God. He believes that Christ, who is ascended, uh, builds his kingdom through the work of the local church, and it's essential for growth and grace and the knowledge of God. And so Calvin very much has a high view of the church in terms of its essential role in promoting, you know, kind of Christian maturity and Christian growth and grace. And finally, John, you have an appendix in the book, Reading Calvin and His Interpreters. It's short, but it's important. And what do you say in that appendix? Well, the the most important thing is picking up uh, C.S. Lewis's quib that it's easier to read Plato than about Plato. And, and want to say it really is much easier to read Calvin than about Calvin. Uh, Calvin was committed to brevity and simplicity in writing. So when you read his commentaries or his treatises, they are short, they're to the point, they're often focused on biblical exposition and kind of pastoral application. And so I would just encourage people to read Calvin. Uh, he did not like speculation. He shows tremendous restraint in a lot of his theological writings. 
And so it's it's fairly easy to kind of get into uh, Calvin. Uh, you know, you can pick up his sermons, which are a great place to start. I've mentioned his letters already. Uh, so reading Calvin really is a joy. And so that appendix is really encouraging people uh, to read Calvin. But if if those uh, are interested in reading some of the great you know scholars on Calvin, I, I try to feature uh, some of my kind of favorite uh, books about Calvin. And I mentioned some of those uh, earlier in our time together. Well, listen, John, we've taken up a lot of your time today and it's been it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? That's great. So my my real love is uh, is John Owen. And so I've been. Uh, hey, I think, you, yeah, you, you might might want to take a look at Owen if you have a little bit of time. Uh, so working on a project uh, where we're trying to do something similar that what I've done with Derek uh, on Calvin to Owen, trying to think through what would a textbook look like on on John Owen. Then my own interest is in Owen's use of biblical interpretation and, and trying to do some ongoing uh, work looking at Owen's use of the Bible as it relates to uh, some of the other themes in his life and ministry. So those are a couple of things that I'm trying to work on at the moment. Uh, sounds great, John. And maybe we'll have you back on to talk about some of those projects in the future. Great. We'd love that very much. Listen, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on to the show. And thanks for being willing to talk about your work as you have done today. Hey, great being here. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.